It's not always easy to find the positive. You might even need to search for happiness. Sometimes, just a little inspiration makes the difference. Here, it comes from unexpected places. Welcome to the Tangential Inspiration Podcast. Hi, I'm Teresa. And I'm Amy. We are two ordinary moms looking for inspiration wherever we can find it. So what's been happening? I loved that we got to go to Remy Winery. Oh, that was so fun. It was very fun. Was I can't so, wait. So to charming do. out there. Very cute. Yeah, it was fun to meet with my friend back from grade school oh. who suggested Remy. Okay. Um, very and I'm cool. so glad he did. It was yeah. great wine. Yeah. Great location. She's doing amazing things. So coming up, I can't wait to go out there and chat with her some yeah. more. Yeah. So that's pretty much the excitement. <laughs> I had a doctor's appointment the other day. I had to drive through downtown Portland. A lot of people have seen Portland yeah. on the news, but right. um, I haven't been down there as much since the pandemic started. And I got to say, I was surprised to see how many people were living in tents right on the sidewalks yeah. of the streets of Portland, like right on like I-5. Right. I can't. I know. I've seen it. There's always been, there've always been homeless in Portland, but it seems that the problem has grown worse or maybe it's just more visible. I don't know. One of the things that always strikes me on very cold days is how miserable it must be living outdoors in freezing temperatures. As a person who's cold all the time, I simply wouldn't survive out on the streets. I know that. But so many people are living on the street and finding shelter when the temperature drops could be a matter of literal survival. Most people who are homeless are aware of the large permanent shelters that are open year-round, but many of them are unaware of locations for emergency shelters that many places, you know, they pop up around the city when the temperatures begin to drop. Right, yeah. The sad thing is we hear about them. But how do other people, how do they hear about them? But they don't don't have have the TV or, you know, most of them, anyway. These shelters are open to give people a location to sleep or just warm up when the temperatures drop to dangerous levels. In Stockholm, Sweden, and a few other cities, Clear Channel Communications has been trying a system of electronic billboards, I think this is brilliant, to help the homeless locate nearby shelters and inform the public of ways that they can help. The electronic billboards, which run ads, start to provide information in between ads and advertise where the nearest emergency shelters are, even providing directions when the temperatures drop. They also provide information on other resources available to the homeless. That is so awesome. Isn't it? There are even messages directed to the general public about how they can donate food, money, or other needed items to help the local homeless population. There's very little cost to this, as it's simply adding a message to an already existing network, but the information could be invaluable to someone who's trying to survive a night in freezing temperatures. More cities need to incorporate this, I think. Oh, for sure. I I like the visibility of that. Yeah. Just that it's easy. Information is there. Yep. You know. Such an easy way to save lives and make a difference. And speaking of freezing temperatures, hopefully we'll soon be out of them. But, I know. Um, every, I think this week is supposed to be in the twenties in the morning. That's what that's what my hair lady was okay. telling. Anyway, me. sorry. Boo! But anyway, everybody can use a pair of warm socks. And a company called I'm sure you've seen these Bombas. Oh, I have. Yeah, yeah. it's making it their mission to help provide warm oh. socks to the homeless as part of their corporate mission. One of the most requested items in homeless shelters, you know this, yeah. are clean socks and underwear. Bombas donates one pair of socks to the homeless shelter or nonprofit for every pair it sells. 
Think about that. For every pair sold, they donate a pair of socks to someone in need. So far, Bombas has provided over 50 million items of clothing to a network of 3,500 shelters and nonprofits. I just think it's such an admirable business model. Yeah, I love that. Me too. My mom gave my husband some Bombas socks for his birthday, and he loves them. They're his go-to socks. He wears them constantly. He says they're super warm, comfy, and he's not picky about socks. He doesn't. So that says a lot that he really wants more of these. I'll say they're not cheap, but they are really nice and come in a bunch of different styles and colors. The ones he likes are merino wool socks. They have socks for men, women, kids, and even some fun character socks, brightly colored ones. I'm always reminding my boys that sometimes it makes sense to pay a little bit more for quality that lasts. Right. And these, you know, socks, I think, are, are worth that. Sounds like I'm getting a kickback or something. <laughs> but um, what really sells me on these socks is the company mission. I'm hoping that more companies will look past the bottom line and find a way to make a difference in their communities like Bombas is. We should all be thinking about how we can help our homeless, whether it's a gift of socks, a donation to a shelter, helping hand out food, or even just providing a listening ear. It's easy to just try and ignore these people, but that's what they are, people, and they need our help. Just like like just like you and me, you know? Exactly, exactly. We need to figure out ways to help. So, good companies. That's awesome. In episode 68, we talked about the book Skinny House, written by Julie Seeley. Julie writes about her grandfather, Nathan Seeley's life, one of the first African-American contractors in New York, his family struggles during the Depression, and then how he lovingly made the Skinny House, which is now a historic registry, which is so awesome. But while I was reading that book, I came across Shirley Ann Jackson, and she attended MIT during the same time as Julie's brother, Nate Mm. Seeley, did. And Shirley was instrumental in establishing MIT's first black student union in 1968. So I was just really curious about her. Mm -hmm. I looked her up, and I was really blown away by this really amazing trailblazing activist and scientist. I knew I had to research her for our podcast. So Shirley was born in 1946 in the Washington, D.C. area. She was one of four kids. Uh, Even at a young age, she was— Do you know where she fell in that? Um, I think she was second second to oldest. She was a scientist, and she spent her summers capturing and studying bees. Oh, my dad would love that. She kept these detailed notes. She really was into, like, observing their patterns and behavior. Shirley's mom, Beatrice, taught her children to read before they went to kindergarten. Shirley's parents valued education and really saw the limits of African Americans in the 1950s, especially on children. The Jacksons lived a few blocks away from a public elementary school, Bernard School. However, they were forced to send their children to another all-black school a couple miles away with no bus. I love this, though. The dads on Shirley's block figured out a carpool, and they took turns toting these kids uh, to and from school. Mm. I love that. They figured it out. They figured it out and, you know, made it work. So mm-hmm. Shirley's mom not is... Not fair, for sure. Not and, fair. Like, ridiculous that they had to do that. Especially when you could probably but, walk to the other school. But they're not going to let it stop them. Nope. Shirley's mom instilled the love of literature where her dad, uh, the, the passion for math and science... Shirley was just a natural-born leader. When she was young, she organized go-kart races in her neighborhood. <laughs> and using that reminds me of, uh, what, what are those kids? L- 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 
Little Rascals. Oh, Rascals. Yeah, it kind of has that vibe to it. Um, Using physics, Shirley designed an aerodynamic body with a narrower front than back, and that allowed the air to move around freely. (laughs) In in third grade, the Supreme Court handed down the decision in one of the most famous cases, Brown versus the Board of Education of Topeka, Kansas, stating that separate is not equal and as such ordered schools to integrate the student population. That was huge. It meant that Shirley could attend that school nearby, Bernard School, where she blossomed uh, I just can't believe that this is so close. I mean, this isn't that long ago. But I know. I'm blown away. By sixth grade, Shirley tested in the honors tracks. And and I love that um, she belonged to the Bernard Improvement Council. So this is t- gal up our alley, <laughs> Teresa, because the gr- uh, this group took care of the school grounds. And then during during the summer, she decided to extend it to, like, the neighborhood, calling it a cleanup <laughs> campaign. So she was plugging or probably walking, cleaning up even before. It was a thing. A thing. You know, the neighborhood kids picked up trash. They swept piles of So she of organized this at sixth grade. In sixth grade, oh, that's yeah. That's awesome. So she's totally ahead of her time mm-hmm. in her concern for the environment. Shirley was a super ambitious teen, participated in citywide spelling bees, as well as oratorical contests. She was also often referred to as a brainiac. So it's not a surprise that one of her guidance counselors suggested that she apply to MIT. Because of her high level of achievement, she received a four-year scholarship covering tuition and other expenses from Martin Marietta Corporation, now Lockheed Mm. Martin. She received scholarships from uh, Prince Hall Masons and African American Masonic Lodge, and then the uh, local Vermont Avenue Church. Shirley graduated top of her class and gave the valedictorian speech. She spoke, in her speech, she spoke of life focused on doing the right thing, working as hard as one could, and aiming to reach the stars. I just love her tenacious spirit. She's awesome. She faced some challenges at MIT. She was one of only two African-American women in the freshman class, which was about 1,000 students, so for their freshman class. Feeling out of place. Yeah, she had a hard time making friends. She tried to join study groups, and she was turned away and told, go away. Shirley dug into her faith and read the Bible. I love that she refused to give up and was just determined to carry on. Her upbringing taught her to help others, so she volunteered at Boston City Hospital in the pediatric ward. One little boy in particular caught her eye. He just had a sweet disposition. He was born without a face. He just did an opening for his mouth. Eventually, he'd get plastic surgery. However, no one visited this young boy, and Shirley would go in early so she could spend time with him before her regular volunteer duties. Why would no one visit him? I don't know. That's just what it said. <laughs> I know. I mean, it's hard. It's just... You're making me cry. I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> I but I, I read that this experience taught her that everyone has a cross to bear, mm-hmm. regardless of race or gender. So it just really made an impact on her. Besides the heavy school load and volunteering, Shirley wanted to, some social interactions, too. So she joined uh, Delta Sigma Theta, one of the oldest African-American sororities in the U.S., she got to know other African-American women from Northeastern University, Boston University, Radcliffe, Brown, Amherst, Wellesley, and the New England. Um, they were all made up this New England chapter. Mm, okay. um, it provided fellowship and comfort and strength, knowing that others kind of facing the same struggles and issues. At the time, no schools would let African-American sororities use their facilities, so they had to be creative to find you know places for meetings and functions they often met at the YMCA. And that's what I was going to ask with, you know, they had to combine yeah. all these schools. So they had to combine them. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. The sorority is more than just socializing. It was also about social outreach. So Shirley focused on helping high schoolers in the area with tutoring them in algebra. Shirley always loved math. After her freshman year, though, she decided to study physics. In her senior year, she decided she wanted to apply to graduate school. She applied to University of Pennsylvania, Brown University, University of Chicago, Harvard, MIT. Okay, well, of course, she got into all of them. Oh, my gosh. And No wonder they called her a brainiac. I mean, in a pivotal moment for her, she was up visiting the University of Pennsylvania to check out the campus. And after she visited, she heard on the radio on the way to the airport that Martin Luther King Jr. had been shot and died. And he'd been such a heroic figure in her life, and she admired how he devoted his life to ensuring civil rights for African Americans. She decided to stay at MIT and attend graduate school with a focus on nuclear and high-energy physics. But equally important to her, she wanted to be a source of change at MIT. She wanted to help create a more welcoming environment for minorities. So in the fall of 1968, she brought a small group of black students together and formed the Black Students Union. Shirley took a scientific approach. I just, I just love how she, I love how she managed, she is with people. I mean, Mm. she truly is a a natural born leader, but she would, she didn't want to just hear about the unfairness. She wanted to collect data to back it up. And then they create a list of demands. They asked for administration to recruit more black students and make financial aid available to them. The group also made demands for campus policies to be friendlier to black students, for more black teachers and administrators to be hired. Go Shirley. I know. And for a transition program for helping, uh, a program to help incoming black students adjust. Mm -hmm. The Black Student Union um, took these proposals to the associate provost, uh, Paul Gray, who later became the president of MIT, he listened to the request and he created a task force on educational opportunity and pointed Shirley to be the student leader. The group included faculty, several administrators, and African-American students. The task force met several times a week and developed policies and processes to help minority students. Shirley was part of recruiting potential black students, traveling all over while maintaining her first I was just going to say, these ladies, they just... I know, she keeps going, going, going. I mean, she's got this full course load. Physics, I mean, it's not a a light subject. One of her, one of the most successful accomplishments of the task force was the creation of this project interface, which I think is so cool. It's a six-week program uh, in the summer, which would bridge the gap with high school and college. It was designed to help Mm. prepare incoming minority students with a to be able to handle a full course load, That's you know, brilliant. Some that actually, maybe didn't yeah. have access to some of those and their sciences. parents had gone, you know, right. so maybe they didn't. Yeah. So I like the you know physics and pre and precalculus and mm-hmm. writing. Shirley taught physics course. She was committed to helping others succeed. She spent her last two years of graduate school opening up her apartment to African American students entering MIT. She made available piles of papers old problem sets, and just tons of books that she'd got, you know, she'd collected. It became a gathering place. I just love her heart for education and helping just genuinely. others. I mean, Gen- she, yeah. yeah, she truly was a mentor. In 1973, Shirley received her PhD from MIT, and she was the first African-American woman to receive a PhD in any field from 
the school. This would be one of the first of many firsts for Shirley. Her first position for her postdoctoral work was working in a theory group at uh, Fermi National Accelerator Laboratory, now called uh, Fermilab. It was located uh, in farmland 35 miles outside of Chicago. Uh, So cool. It's like a four-mile ring buried beneath the land and held these facilities. This is where the famed proton accelerator ring, where the physicists sent uh, particles zooming at nearly the speed of light on a collision course. The founder and director of Fermilab promoted human rights policy that everyone um, at the lab can live and work with pride and dignity with regard to to such differences as race. So he really promoted this. However, not everybody in the community was ready to accept um, Wilson's ideology. Shirley found that many of her co-workers were unfriendly. It kind of reminded her of her time back at MIT. And she had a difficulty finding an apartment to rent as an African-American. <sighs> she finally found an apartment in Chicago, which was a 70-mile round trip. Ridiculous. Once, yeah, I mean, it's crazy. One year after working at uh, Fermi, Fermi Lab, Shirley applied to the Ford Foundation requesting a postdoctoral fellowship to work in the European Organization for Nuclear Research, also known as uh, CERN CERN, uh, mm. in Geneva, mm-hmm. Switzerland, the world's largest particle physics center where physicists from all over work. She got to collaborate on a paper on neutrino experiments. Neutrinos are the most mysterious particles in the universe. I'm so glad you They are, yeah, I don't know what you because when you said yeah, that, I was like, they, what they, they are electrically neutral and have virtually no mass. So, but, Probably talked about that on the Big Bang Theory yeah, probably. at some point, but it went over my head. She loved working there, especially the cultural, diverse work environment, the people of different races and ethnicities. In 1976, Shirley met um, with Morris Rice, who was the head of AT&T Bell Laboratories. Shirley was interested in switching fields from high-energy physics to uh, condensed matter physics. She's just like, ooh, okay. Which Bell Labs was involved in. Uh, Shirley's educational background, along with her intelligence, won her a one-year position as a member of their technical staff. She worked on important problems and wrote papers. She focused on semiconductors. These are the materials that conduct electricity only under certain circumstances and are used to control, like, current and electronic equipment. Um, I worked at Lattice. Semiconductor mm-hmm. <laughs> customer service. I kind of know a little teeny bit, but not much. Not like Way that. more than me. Not like that much. But her work was instrumental in creating the sem- semiconductor lasers. That's what, you know, now when we have CDs that we listen to mm-hmm. or we scan something um, at the grocery store, you're using the technology technology that Shirley helped to oh, improve. Oh, cool. So, Shirley continued to share her knowledge. She gave talks at conferences. While at Bell Labs, she met her husband, Morris Washington, and a year later, she had a, her son, Alan. And then Shirley and Morris um, worked out their schedules so they could both share in, um, responsibility for caring for Alan. So ahead of the time. I know. And still have these careers. Yeah. You know, pretty just... heavy careers. It was really important that they spend time together. What great role models. I know. In 1985, Shirley had been working at Bell Labs for nine years and wanted to expand her knowledge into the public sector. So Governor Thomas Keene of New Jersey asked her to become the founding member of the New Jersey Commission on Science and Technology, which, you know, wow. I mean, she's just, I'm only just beginning here. Her role was to create partnership between industry and government. She met with 
a lot of criticism from her fellow co-workers, but again, she didn't let that stop her. I mean, she was keeping her job and doing this on the side, you know. Then well, she got used to having no time whatsoever back in college when she was I know, she doing was all just her stuff a, and then volunteering and, yeah. And she's just a and, go-getter. I mean, her contributions were so valuable. She ended up serving for 10 years in that role. And then again, surely in 1991, again, she felt like it was time for another change. And she began mentoring students at Bell Labs. And then Rutgers University invited her to give seminars on theoretical physics. And Rutgers administration was so impressed with her, they offered her a job as a tenured professor, which is the highest teaching mm-hmm. and research position university And not offers. a bad school. No, no, no. <laughs> and she still stayed at Bell Labs. She still wanted to be a part of mm-hmm. that. And during this time, she served on a large utility company in New Jersey that co-owned um, five nuclear power plants. So she also served as an advisory council, you know, on an industry group. They wanted to improve operating performance of these n- nuclear power plants. I mean, if that wasn't impressive enough, Shirley got a call from the director of the Office of the Presidential Personnel asking her to submit a resume for a presidential impo- appointment. However, they didn't say what the appointment entailed, so Shirley didn't send a resume. Yeah. Two, la- two days later, they call her back and says she's now being considered for the job. <laughs> and still no details. <laughs> like, I didn't apply. I know, but Shirley sent her resume. Shortly after that, she learned the job was um, with the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. This agency is responsible for you know, ensuring the safety of the nation's 110 nuclear reactors. It also regulates the use of nuclear materials in medical, industrial, and academic facilities that produce nuclear fuel, as well as disposal of nuclear waste. So Shirley's expertise landed her the position of chairman mm. of the NRC. She it's was important to have somebody smart thrilled. in I mean, charge of that. Yeah. yeah. This meant she'd be working in D.C. during the week, and then she'd be home in New Jersey on the weekends, which... I just, again, admire the way their family We're dynamics. Together, yeah. yeah. So Morris took care Make of Alan, getting him off to school. And I'm sure it was a big, a big adjustment. Mm. Shirley quickly learned that many of the nuclear pl- power plants were not safe and the plant equipment wasn't being maintained. And just like at MIT, when she started with a black student union, she gathered people to discuss issues. And she, again, put together a group to collect data she took um, action to correct the problems. She reviewed all 110 nuclear reactors. She recognized the importance also of informing the public. So she'd also, when she'd visit a power plant, she'd bring, she'd deep, you know, she'd brief the media too, so the public would be aware. Which I just love that transparency. Absolutely, uh, we need that now. Shirley took her concern to the international community as well and formed the first international nuclear uh, regulators association. The group included senior regulatory officials from Canada, France, Germany, Japan, Spain, Sweden, the UK, and the US. The group focused on issues and offered assistance on matters of safety. This lady sure knows how to get things done. Yes, I love that. Change and improvement. It's no surprise that she gets another phone call asking if she'd be interested in becoming the 18th president of Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. Of course, she accepted. She she missed academic life, and so she left the NRC. And she's been there since she just retired just last November. Oh, my gosh. At 76. So, I mean. Amazing woman. I know. When when she's described as an energizer bunny, I mean, that truly <laughs> describes her. 
I can't say enough about researching her. I was just totally awestruck. I mean, she's a trailblazer for all women. Yeah. I, I have never heard of her. Yeah. I just, I admire her ambition and accomplishments for sure. Most of all, I admire how she continually gave back by educating future generations in physics. I'm just blown away by her ability to gather people together and create policies and change at MIT, later at NRC. And I just think she'd make an awesome president because I love love her way that she does policy and gathers people. And And listens to them. And listens. And And then comes up with a plan. Right. You know, the 10 10 items. She's truly a natural born leader. Yeah. Do not be limited by what others expect of you, but confidently reach for the star. Shirley Ann Jackson. I was watching my favorite morning show, the Today Show, and this segment on two men in Chicago area, Andrew Smith and Tristan Lewis, who 15 months ago started a nonprofit, The Healing. The story Mm. reminded me of episode 47, where we chatted about coffee, hip-hop, and mental health, also in Chicago, where founder Christopher Lamarck is using proceeds of the cafe to go to mental health programs and resources for those in high poverty who normally wouldn't have access Mm -hmm. to therapy. The healing goal is for black men to practice yoga together. Oh, I love that. And provide a place to open up about their struggles with mental health, Mm -hmm. too. These men wanted to do something to help men in their community heal, especially after dealing with the stress and isolation of the pandemic, the killings of George Floyd, uh, Breonna Taylor, and Ahmaud Aubrey, which ignited you know, worldwide protests. Andrew and Tristan felt a call to action. According to data from the CDC, over the past 15 months, uh, Black adults have experienced higher levels of depression and anxiety symptoms than white adults. Doesn't surprise me. I mean, that's just, those are, you just named three people. Right. Well, and Chicago in particular, where Black people make up 30% of the population and have made up 70% of the COVID-related deaths. Mm. Um, there definitely is a need. So these two men wanted to create a space for healing and place to support men in these transitions. It began as a weekly low-key outdoor workouts. It's kind of interesting to note that these two men are newcomers to yoga. <laughs> they started with 20 guys. That makes it even better, right? I know. It's it's really cute. The shots of these men, it was really fun. Um Working, you know, doing the yoga. Mm-hmm. It was really, really fun. But anyways, <laughs> over time, the group grew, and they all co- became close friends. And after the workout, comments from the men were like, you know, I didn't I didn't know I needed this. The healing was has hosted sessions on football fields. It's pretty typical for men to hang out for an hour or maybe 90 minutes after the yoga session to talk. What a, I mean, I just love this. What a great way to build the community and then combat depression and anxiety and then also provides a place, you know, to process the stress of the pandemic and racial trauma. Make uh, friends. Make friends. The, I f- thought this was really interesting. The focus that most of the men really, you know, resonated with him was the mindfulness and the quietness, those components mm-hmm. of yoga, mm-hmm. which I'm not good at that. No, I'm quiet part, but I just, I love it. I admire these two guys' unique approach to offer healing place for black men in their community and provide physical and mental benefits. That is so awesome. Yeah. Good job, today's show. Yeah, good job. Story. (laughs) The magnitude and reach of your power is up to you, Shirley Ann Jackson. Thanks for listening to Tangential Inspiration. We really want to hear from you. Email us your comments or story suggestions at tangentialinspiration at gmail.com. 
or leave a comment on our website, tangentialinspiration.com. Our website has all our podcast episodes, show notes, stories, follow-ups, and links to websites and books we talk about. Like and subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app, and you can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Have a great week.